All right, well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13? And as we have come to Matthew 13, we have discovered that the chapter contains seven parables, all having one theme, the kingdom of God, which is, again, why they are called the kingdom parables. The kingdom of God, or as Matthew refers to it in his gospel, the kingdom of heaven, is not an easy thing to define, all right? I'm sure I've confused some of you trying to define it. Let me try one more time. The phrase is used of Jewish and Gentile believers in Jesus before the rapture, uh, those who are part of the true church, but also includes those who profess to be Christians but are not born again. What we will call members of the apostate church. These would include liberal Christians who deny the very basic doctrines of the Christian faith, the virgin birth, the blood atonement, the bodily resurrection. Why they call themselves Christians, I have no idea. God's not calling them that. They can call themselves whatever they want. But, you know, you're going to be born of the Spirit to be a genuine Christian, which means you believe the right things as well. But also those in what's called Christian cults, like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian science, etc. But the kingdom of God also includes tribulation saints or believers in Christ after the rapture. These will technically not be a part of the church, which consists only of Jewish and Gentile believers who have come to Christ and gotten saved between Pentecost 2,000 years ago and the rapture of the church whenever that takes place. But these folks who get saved after the rapture when the tribulation period officially begins, the Holy Spirit's going to be at work very powerfully. Millions upon millions of people will get converted, both Jews and Gentiles. They are called tribulation saints, but they are still part of the kingdom of God on the earth. Now, as we said last week, the kingdom of heaven upon the earth will someday be relocated and become the kingdom of heaven in heaven. And at that time, it will only consist of genuine believers in Jesus Christ, those who have been truly born again. Look, when time is done and eternity has begun, when everything false is done away with and every rebel has been judged and sent to hell, the kingdom of God in heaven will contain no phonies, no counterfeit Christians, nor will it include any fallen angels, but only those angels that have remained faithful to God. So we're looking at the future time in the eternal state when there will have an existence which will be free of all sin, all defilement, and will only consist of the Lord himself and all those who have bowed the knee to his divine authority in their lives. But for right now, guys, the kingdom of God on the earth is made up of the true and false living side by side, which, as we have already seen, was the theme of parables 2, 3, and 4, the parable of the tares and wheat, of the mustard seed, and of the leaven. And of all those we study, those three uh, parables, those deal with Satan's attempt to thwart the kingdom on earth by infiltrating it and corrupting it from the inside. Listen, God is wanting to expand his kingdom all the time on the earth, which means we go out, share the gospel, people are getting saved, right? God's kingdom is growing. Satan, of course, doesn't want that. So he tries through a direct frontal assault to stop Christians from, from spreading the good news. Sometimes that works. Many times it does not just make Christians and the church even stronger. So when that happens, he changes his tactics. And if you can't beat him, join him. Then he tries to infiltrate into a church and tries to corrupt it from the inside, thereby 
neutralizing its effectiveness in reaching people for the Lord. This morning, as we've already looked at now the first uh, four parables, we want to turn our attention to studying the fifth and sixth parables, the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the great price. Excuse me, the parable of the pearl of great price. These parables deal with the costliness of the kingdom. How it really cost you and I nothing to become members of this glorious kingdom. But it cost the Lord Jesus everything to make it available to us. And I'll just say one little word of warning here up front so you understand. We're going to spend most of our time on the first parable. Because the second one is just like it. So we'll just make, because you, you know, you, you're sitting here and you go, man, he's only on the first parable. All right. <laughs> By the time we get done with the first parable, you will have understood this. You'll already understand the second. So don't get nervous, all right? I'm not going to keep you here all afternoon. All right, first of all, let's look at the parable of the hidden treasure found in verse 44. Where Jesus said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for the joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Let me give you a little background. First of all, a parable, as we've already talked about, is an earthly story that revolves around a common practice or situation that is then used to illustrate spiritual truth. Here, as he does with the other parables he gives, Jesus presents a simple practice that came out of everyday life that everyone back then would have totally understood and could relate to, and then uses it to teach a kingdom principle. It's, you read this little verse. Okay, verse 44, it might sound like incredible luck for a man to be walking through a field somewhere where he happens to stumble across some kind of buried treasure. We would say, wow, I wish that would happen to me, right? But what might seem to us like a rare occurrence was actually, listen, quite common to them in the ancient world. You see, the ancient world had banks, but they really weren't for the common man. Ordinary folks like us, well, they use the ground, okay, as the safest place to keep their most valuable possessions. We see this um, demonstrated in another parable, which comes out of Matthew 25, verse 25, the parable of the talents where the worthless servant hid his talent in the ground lest he should lose it. The rabbis used to have a saying back then that there was only one safe repository for money, and that was the earth. And the idea was that they would bury their valuables, and when they needed something, some money, they would go to the spot, no doubt at night, uh, would dig up the box or jar where the coins or the jewelry was in, take out what they needed, and rebury the rest. Now the problem is, the land of Israel has known more wars than any piece of real estate in the history of the world. For centuries and centuries, you had armies attacking uh, the Jewish people on their own home turf, and even when they were not the direct target, like when Syria and Egypt were in power, they would have to march through Israel to get to each other. And as they did, they just beat up the Jews on the way. Because why not? All right, we're mad anyhow. All right, we can't wait to get to those Egyptians or those Syrians. Let's beat up the Jews since we've got to go through their land anyways, right? So the, the land of Israel has been a battlefield for hundreds of years. And because of it, families would often bury things like food, clothing and other household objects to protect them from invading enemies that would plunder the land. Here's the problem. Many times the owner of the land who had buried treasure there for future use 
uh, when the land would be besieged, if he couldn't escape in time, he might be killed. Or as he was trying to escape, he might be killed. Or maybe he just died of old age. He didn't tell anybody what he had buried on his property. Or maybe the enemy came and deported him to Babylon or Assyria, as they did in the Old Testament. And he died there. What happened then? Well, eventually the land would become the property of his next of kin, who wouldn't know anything about the treasure he had buried in this piece of land he now inherited, which meant the valuables in the ground would then be forever lost unless somebody happened to stumble upon them, which oftentimes happened. You say, well, how could that happen if they were buried? Well, when they buried stuff back then, you know, they didn't want to forget where they put it. So they would often take some stones, you know, not real prominent, but, you know, set up a few stones in a place where they would kind of mark the ground, right? Well, in that culture, everybody did this. You got used to what the little markers looked like. You know, you're walking through a piece of a field somewhere and you see some rocks that don't look like, uh, you know, they're just natural there. Somebody kind of put them there and you dig underneath and sure enough, there was something buried there. Or if it was a bigger object, you know, not like coins or jewelry, but, you know, they would bury other things too. Maybe erosion, some, something would start sticking up out of the ground and you go and you, you find some treasure there. So what happened, guys? It was not uncommon to find buried treasure in a piece of ground. Now, here's the thing. Many people have a problem with this parable on ethical grounds. You say, what do you mean? Well, uh, the problem is that in the parable that after finding the treasure, instead of letting the owner of the field know that he had buried treasure on his property, the traveler who found it doesn't tell him, goes out and buys the field to get the treasure. And yet the folks that want to find fault with this parable for that very thing don't seem to realize that the man walking through the field upon finding the, the treasure could have just stolen it and not bought the field at all, right? So there's things going on here that we need to understand. But instead he goes and sells everything that he has and legally buys the field so that he can rightfully possess the treasure. Hang on to that thought. It's key in understanding the point of the parable. But what does it mean? Well, the first interpretation held by many, and I'm talking many good, solid scholars and Bible teachers and so on, the first interpretation held by many is that the man walking through the field represents an unsaved person. Any unsaved person. A sinner. Okay? The treasure, they say, represents the kingdom. Or, in other words, being a part of the kingdom. We would say salvation. It's hidden because they say salvation takes, uh, makes us a part of an invisible kingdom. A spiritual kingdom which cannot be seen with physical sight. One commentator who held to this particular interpretation said, and I quote, The field in the parable that cost everything the man owned represents the losses, hardships, and persecution of a follower of Jesus is called on to endure for him. And they say the point of the parable is that salvation will cost you everything to possess. Like the rich young ruler that Jesus told to go out and sell everything he owned and give it to the poor before he could follow Jesus and have eternal life, they tell us that's the very point this parable is making. All right? Let me just say this. Um, there are several problems with that interpretation. The first being that, as we saw last week, in parables, whenever a field is mentioned, it, it always represents the world. 
Even Jesus mentioned this in Matthew 38, excuse me, verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 38. The field in a parable represents the world. The treasure doesn't represent salvation or the kingdom, or even Jesus Christ for that matter, as some suggest. The New Testament clearly teaches, guys, that lost sinners have a nature, listen, that is rebellious against God and a mind whose thoughts are at enmity with God. As such, they are not looking for salvation. They are not out looking for God, really. Paul makes that clear in Romans 3, verse 11. He said, and I quote, There is none, and he's talking about unbelievers now, there is none who seeks after God. In other words, initiates the process of salvation. You say, wait a minute now. That's not true. At one point, I started looking for God. I felt that I needed God. I went out looking for God. No, you didn't. You were responding to the call of God. You don't even know it. The Lord was out looking for you. He was calling to your heart. You didn't know He was calling, but something was tugging you in that direction. Look, Jesus is called the Good Shepherd, right? Sheep who are lost don't go out looking for the shepherd. The shepherd goes out looking for the sheep, right? Didn't He say that in Luke 19, verse 10? For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. People say, you know, I found Jesus. You didn't find Jesus. He wasn't lost. You were lost. He found you and me. So in this parable, I believe the treasure isn't salvation or the kingdom or even Jesus. I believe the treasure represents... Now hang on to your seats. Throw your little curveball. I believe the treasure represents believing Israel. Believing Israel. God even refers to Israel as His treasure in numerous places in the Old Testament. Let's give you a couple. Psalm 135, verse 4. The Lord has chosen Jacob for Himself, Israel, for His special treasure. Exodus 19, verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to Me, above all people, for all the earth is mine. So, guys, I believe the treasure is believing Israel. And the man who finds the treasure and gives up everything to buy the field so that he might possess the treasure is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Look, we know Jesus didn't come just to die exclusively for Israel. He came to die for the sins of the whole world. But... In a special way, no, he didn't die for Israel exclusively, but he did die for Israel primarily. In Isaiah 53, verse 8, we read, He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people Israel, he was stricken. Talking about Messiah now. We know him as Jesus Christ. But notice what God says here. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. In John 11:51, we read, Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, the nation of Israel. And look, I can make a case that only Jews get saved. So well, wait a minute. What are you talking about? Well, those who are True Jews, descendants of Abraham who believe in Messiah Jesus, they're saved. But when you put your faith in Christ as a Gentile, you became children of Abraham because the same promise that God gave to him 
for the kingdom you've now embraced. You've embraced the Messiah. You've become spiritual Jews, grafted into the promises God gave the patriarchs. So we can make a case that only Israel gets saved. Both literal Jews and then believing Gentiles who become spiritual Jews. But I'm not going to belabor that, okay? So the man in this parable who finds the treasure and goes out and sells everything that he has to buy the field is the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul said. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. He said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So Jesus in heaven, second person of the Trinity, he laid his glory aside to become a man, to come down here to become a man. He was rich, he became poor, went to the cross to die for our sins that we who believe in him could be rich eternally in heaven. Guys, the idea that the man in this parable represents a lost sinner who finds salvation or Jesus and then hides it, which I don't quite get, you know, uh, until he can go out and sell everything so as to purchase salvation. Look, that's completely co- contrary to everything the New Testament teaches about acquiring salvation. Salvation is not a, not a commodity we buy. Listen, it's a gift we receive freely by faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not the result of our works, lest any should boast. Nowhere in the New Testament do we ever find any place that even alludes to the fact that we buy eternal life. It's always received as a gift. You say, well, yeah, but what about that rich young ruler you mentioned earlier? Didn't he have to go out and sell everything he had before he could have salvation? No. He wasn't buying his salvation. The point was, his money was on the throne of his heart, and Jesus said, you will not be able to truly follow me until you get rid of that. Salvation's free. But you can't have the gift if you're not willing to follow the Savior. And so, whatever is keeping a person from truly following Jesus, well, he puts his finger on that and says, look, that's got to go. But you're not earning your salvation or purchasing it. You are just getting the obstacle out of the way so you can receive it by faith. It's free. And let's not forget one very important detail in this parable. If you make the man to represent any sinner who finds salvation, why would he have to go out and buy the whole field to possess salvation? Look, in parables, as we just gotten done saying, the field represents the world. This parable only makes sense if the man is Jesus, who gave up everything to become one of us, to die on the cross for us, and thereby buy the world, okay, the field in this parable. Back from Satan, listen, who stole it from Adam and Eve through deception. That's why the guy who finds the treasure in the field doesn't have to go to the owner and say, I found a treasure in your field because the field was stolen in the first place, is the idea. The field represents the world. God gave the world to Adam and Eve. Satan deceived them and stole the world from them. You think the Lord Jesus Christ has to go to Satan and ask for permission to buy back what belongs to him anyways? Look, Jesus needed to redeem the whole world to claim his treasure, which, of course, in this parable focuses on redeemed Israel. But listen, guys, in general, it includes all those who receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. But you don't have to turn there. I want to really hammer this home for a minute because 
this little parable is teaching a lot of truth. And in Revelation chapter 5, we see a vision of heaven through John's eyes. And John sees the Father on his throne with an emerald rainbow over around his head. And at one point, as John is looking at the Father, he sees in his right hand a scroll written on both sides, sealed with seven seals. And the cry goes out throughout all of heaven, who is worthy to take the scroll and the lucid seals? And eventually, John says, I saw a lamb, listen, as it had been slain, the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking of his redemptive work, who steps forward and he takes the scroll out of the Father's right hand. A scroll, listen, that he purchased with his own blood. The scroll... You say, what is it? It's the title deed to the earth. The title deed to the earth. You see, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, of course, the earth belonged to the Lord by virtue of divine creation. God created it. God owned it. But God gave the earth at one point to man, mankind, Adam and Eve, and told them to possess it and to have dominion over it. But then, of course, chapter 3 opens up. Satan takes the form of a serpent. He comes to Eve one time when Adam was doing something. I don't know, getting some milk at 7-Eleven. I don't know where he was. He was out. He was gone. Satan comes to him, to her in the form of a serpent and tempts her to eat the forbidden fruit, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was in the midst of the garden, to go ahead and eat the fruit that God had forbidden them to eat, promising her, deceiving her, that she would become like God, a God, if she went ahead and ate the fruit. Well, she thought that was a pretty good deal. And so she ate, gave to Adam, and he ate. And they, as they both disobeyed God and obeyed the devil, something happened. A transaction took place. A very devastating transaction. First of all, Adam and Eve fell from perfection, fell from fellowship with God. And the consequence for them, their descendants, and listen, the earth itself was that it all got transferred over to Satan's control. At that point, Satan became earth's new owner and man's new master. Now, I want to explain this because it's very critical you understand this, but let me use a smaller illustration. Let me just use land in Israel uh, to kind of illustrate this, okay? We know from reading the Old Testament that land in Israel was never really sold because it belonged to the Lord, right? The world is the Lord's in the fullness thereof, Psalm 24, verse 1. And although now Satan was in possession of it, the world still belonged to God, although it was now under the control of the devil. That is why in Revelation 5, the scroll was still was in the Father's right hand. Remember, as Jesus steps up to the throne to take the, the scroll? out of the Father's right hand, it was in the Father's hand, not in the devil's hand, because even though Satan possessed the world and controlled the world, he didn't really own the world. It still belonged to God. Because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. You say, but I don't understand how that works. Let me just go on to explain how land deals work in Israel. You see, in Israel back then, if you couldn't pay off your debt... You became the slave of your creditor, and your land would also now be placed under his control until the debt was paid. Your creditor couldn't take your land as payment for your debt 
because all land in Israel belonged to God in perpetuity. In fact, as a Jew back then, you couldn't even sell your own land. All you could do was enter into a lease agreement with your creditor until the debt was paid off. A lease agreement that by law would have to contain a redemption clause. So that if you came into some money down the road, you could redeem the property back. Or, listen, if you had a wealthy relative, a kinsman, the Hebrew is goel, they could redeem the property back for you. Guys, that's the theme of the book of Ruth, isn't it? This little four-chapter book, the whole theme is this very thing we're talking about. How Naomi lost a piece of property. And it was hers, but it was now in the possession of another. And she didn't have the money to redeem it. But a wealthy relative stepped forward, Boaz, who redeemed the land and in the process got the what? Got the bride, which was Ruth. When Jesus came to the earth, guys, he came as our kinsman redeemer. I thought this was interesting when I dug this out years ago. A man, according to Jewish law, had to satisfy three requirements to redeem land in Israel. Listen, here they are. First of all, he had to be a kinsman, a blood relative. That's why Jesus Christ had to become one of us. Adam blew it. Adam forfeited the world to the devil. And it had to be a descendant of Adam. The Bible calls him the second Adam, a kinsman of the human race, to, to redeem the property, right? To redeem the world. So he had to be a kinsman, a blood relative. Secondly, he had to be able to redeem the land. Well, only one person could have redeemed the land, and that was a spotless human being. The only spotless human being that's ever lived is Jesus Christ, who was born without sin, right? That's why he alone could be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, because he was sinless. So he had to be a blood relative. He had to be able to redeem the land. And thirdly, he had to be willing. Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I give it freely for the sheep. When Jesus came to the earth, his purpose in coming to the earth was to redeem the world back from the control of Satan. I don't have time to have you turn to these, so just listen. I'll read them to you. 1 John 5.19, John says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway or the control of the wicked one. Well, that was our predicament. Ever since the Garden of Eden, the world was now under the devil's control. Jesus did not argue with Satan when Satan took him up to a high mountain at one point, showed him all the kingdoms of the earth in a moment's time, said, all these belong to me, and I'll give them to you if you'll just bow down and worship me. Don't go to the cross. I know why you're here. You're here to go to the cross so you can have the world. I'll give you the world. Just don't go to the cross. Jesus didn't say, Satan, you big fat liar, you don't own the world. He knew it was his. So the whole world lied under the control of the wicked one. First John 4.14 and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of what? The world. Sorry, I didn't have you turn there, so I'm sorry I asked you that. You have it in front of you. But the Father sent the Son as Savior of the world. Look, I'm not teaching limited atonement here. You know, when I say that Jesus was the man who gave up everything to get the treasure in the field. He didn't just buy the treasure. He bought the entire what? Field. 
the world. Look, technically, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Everybody in the world could be saved. He made provision for every single person on the face of the earth who has ever lived to come to him and find eternal life, forgiveness of sins. Now, is everybody in the world going to receive Christ and be saved? No, of course not. But that's not because God is limiting the scope of his atonement or his invitation. It's just that we have a free will and God has purchased the world back from the devil and is offering us now eternal life through his son. You can take it and say thank you. It's a free gift. Or as many do, God extends it, says here, I have a free gift of eternal life for you. And people want to slap God's hand away. I don't want anything from you. I'm going to live my own life. Or, no, thank you very much. I'll earn it. I'm going to earn it by going to church and doing all these rituals and ceremonies. And God will say to them, if you try to earn a free gift, you can't have it. Because I'm not going to share my glory with anybody. I did the work. My son paid the price. So it's a free gift. You either accept it and say thank you, or you can't have it. But either way, it's there for you. The whole world can be saved. First John 2, verses 1 and 2. John said, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Listen, and not for ours only, not just for those who have believed, but also for the sins of the whole world. God sent his Son because he so loved the world that anyone who believes in him would not perish in hell but have everlasting life. The whole world has been invited. Many are called. Few are chosen. The chosen are the ones who receive Christ, who God knew in eternity past would choose the Son when the gospel was presented. And so he chose them and gave to them eternal life. You say, well, yes, but why did the man in the parable then, when he found the treasure, only go then and hide it? I mean, you know, you know, why did the man in the parable find the treasure only to hide it before coming back to possess it? Well, I'll let author Warren Worsby explain that to you. He said, and I quote, Israel was placed in the world to bring glory to God, but it failed. It became a nation hidden, a treasure not being invested to produce dividends for God. Jesus Christ gave his all to purchase the whole world in order to save the nation of Israel, primarily, John 11:51. On the cross, Jesus died for the whole world, but in a special way, he died for Israel. Isaiah 53, verse 8. The nation suffered judgment. Remember in 70 AD, because they rejected their Messiah, the Romans came, and the nation was scattered throughout the world. A treasure of God now hidden, out of their land. Hidden, and will, but will someday be revealed again in glory. There is then a future for Israel. Politically, the nation was reborn on May 14, 1948. But the nation is far from what it ought to be spiritually. That's right. Mostly it's secular. A large number of atheists make up the, the land of Israel today. Worsby says, God sees Israel as his treasure. And one day he will establish her in the glorious kingdom, which is coming, of course. End quote. All right. Well, that brings us to the parable of the pearl of great price. And like I said, this is not going to take very long at all because we read in verses 45 and 46 Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he has found one pearl of great price, went out and sold all that he had and bought it. 
And once again, many interpret this to mean the merchant was is a sinner who goes out looking for Jesus, who is the pearl of great price. And when they find Jesus, they go out and sell everything and buy Jesus, buy salvation. Well, as we've already said, that's not that's an inversion of what the Bible teaches. All right, about this very thing. I believe the interpretation of this parable is very similar to the one we just got done looking at. In the parable of the hidden treasure, the emphasis was on Jewish believers, or in other words, Israel. In the parable of the pearl of great price, the emphasis is on the Gentile believers, or in other words, the church. Now, let me read to you what author William MacDonald said, because I think he captured this better than anyone else I read on the subject. Let me just read to you, because he kind of ties it all together for you. He said, and I quote, In a hymn that says, I found the pearl of greatest price, the finder is the sinner, and the pearl is the Savior. But again, we protest that the sinner does not have to sell all and does not have to buy Christ. We rather believe that the merchant is the Lord Jesus. The pearl of great price is the church. At Calvary, he sold all that he had to buy the, this pearl. Just as a pearl is formed inside an oyster through suffering caused by irritation, so the church was formed through the piercing and wounding of the body of the Savior. It is interesting that in the parable of the treasure, the kingdom is likened to the treasure itself. But here, the kingdom is not likened to the pearl, but listen to the merchant man. Why this difference? In the preceding parable, the emphasis is on the treasure, redeemed Israel. The kingdom is closely linked with the nation of Israel. It was originally offered to that nation, and in its future form, the Jewish people will be its principal subjects. The emphasis in the second parable is on the king himself and the tremendous price he paid to woo and win a bride that would share his glory in the day of his manifestation when he returns. As the pearl comes out of the sea, so the church, sometimes called the Gentile bride of Christ, largely comes out of the nations. And in scripture, uh, when the seas are mentioned, often they're symbolic of the nations. This does not overlook the fact that there are converted uh, Israelites in it, but merely states that the, that the dominant feature of the church is that it is a people called out from the nations for his name. In Acts 15, verse 14, James confirms this as being the grand purpose of God at the present time. End quote. All right, what is the bottom line in all of this? What is the bottom line? Here it is, folks. Let me give it to you as succinctly as I can. You are precious to God. You are precious to God. But hear me out. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. You are not precious because you have some intrinsic value in and of yourself. Okay? You're not precious because you and I are worth something. I mean, we are just worthless sinners. Newton got it right when he said, uh, when he wrote, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. You are precious to God and I am precious to God, not because we have any intrinsic value or worth in and of ourselves. You and I are precious to Him because guess what? He chooses to ascribe value to us. He chooses to ascribe value to us. Let me give you an illustration that I've given before, but if you're new with us, you haven't heard this yet. Let me just give it to you. All right? Because I think it captures this idea. 
In my house, I have under our bed a box with pictures in it. Now, when our kids were little, we couldn't afford a camcorder, so we never took videos of the kids growing up. We took pictures, okay? What are pictures? They're images on cardboard stock. Are those pictures, do they have any intrinsic value in and of themselves? No. They're worthless pieces of paper. But I'll tell you what, guys. If a fire broke out in my house, after I made sure my family was safely out, I would grab that box of pictures. I don't care about the DVD player. I don't care about my laptop computer. I don't care about the jewelry. There's not much of it, but I don't care about that either. Those pictures are priceless to me. They chronicle our family and my children growing up, birthday parties, Christmas. They're not worth anything to anybody. They're not intrinsically worth anything in and of themselves. There's no intrinsic value in them. But I have chosen to ascribe value to them. I have chosen to do that. Look, it's kind of like when God chose Israel. And God said at one point, why do you think I chose you? Do you think I chose you because you were a numerous and great people? You were a small, insignificant people. Do you think I chose you to be my people because you were a righteous people? You were a stiff-necked and rebellious people. Why did I choose you? Because I chose you. End of story. That's it. I didn't choose you because there was anything worthwhile in you. I chose you because I chose to ascribe value to you. Folks, it's called grace. It's called grace. Every one of us here this morning who has received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, it was because God wooed us. He pursued us. He chased us and he tackled us and he opened our eyes and he showed us how much he loves us, that he wants us to be his children, that he has an inheritance waiting for us in heaven that is unfathomable, that will never fade away. You say, well, I'm not worthy of that. Of course you're not. Neither am I. And when you let the devil tell you, when you blow it, you know what? God is done with you because, you know what? You're not really measuring up to the standard that he requires to remain one of his kids. See, that's such a lie. Because in eternity past, before I was ever created, God knew every sin I was ever going to commit. And he still offered me to be a part of his family. The Bible says he chooses the foolish, the weak, the base, the nobodies to be his kids. So that no flesh can ever glory in his presence. And say, I'm here in heaven because I deserve to be here. It's a free gift, right? God is offering you a free gift today. If you have not received Christ, know this. He has gone to great lakes to purchase this world through his own blood out of the hands of Satan. And now, if you want, you can be the treasure he was had in mind the whole time. You can be part of the treasure that he was seeking. Do you think he needs a world? you think the Lord needs another rock in the cosmos? He's got planets everywhere. Trillions of them. you think he shed his blood on earth because he wanted another rock in the cosmos? There was a treasure on this planet. And he wanted the treasure. And the treasure would be all those who would receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. A treasure that he could gather to himself someday and give an inheritance to a kingdom in heaven forever. What do you do when somebody offers you a gift like that? What do you do? You take it and you say what? 
thank you. That's all you do. That's all God wants you to do. He just wants you to receive the gift and say, thank you. I didn't deserve this. But you, out of your great love, have purchased my salvation. Lord, I know I'm completely unworthy. But I know it's all by your grace. And grace means that we get what we don't deserve. So guys, when you read about the pearl of great price, and you read about the hidden treasure, remember one thing. The same man who pursued the Jews and the Gentiles, that man, Jesus Christ, gave up everything to become nothing, to die on the cross that you and I might receive everything someday. That's quite a story. May God give us the grace to fully comprehend his great love. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Father, we thank you for your great love, Lord, with which you loved us. Lord, you could have abandoned us. You could have left us and gone to some other part of the universe to create another race of people. But Lord, you stuck with us. You provided a way for us to be saved, to be your, become your children. And Lord, we thank you. Forgive us, Lord, for thinking that we are worthy of the least of your blessings. And forgive us, Lord, when we listen to the condemnation of the devil who tells us when we blow it, we're not worthy of your blessings. Well, of course we're not. But Lord, it's by your grace. And we thank you for your grace, Lord. It is a sweet sound that saved a wretch like us. We just praise you, Lord. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.